to When God Was Queer with your host, Dakota St. Clair. Hey everyone, welcome back to When God Was Queer. We're back after a short break. It was my birthday, yay, and also the kickoff for the online classes that I've been teaching. I'm actually going to shout those out at the end of the episode. If you want to join in, then you can check it out then. Anyway, today is going to be one hell of a deep dive, so I hope you're buckled up because we're covering the evolution of Venus. What's that? Well, going all the way back to the beginning of recorded history and even further, there have been goddesses associated with the planet Venus, and they actually sort of all figure into a continuum of sorts, both evolving and maintaining key features shared among them. We're going to go in more or less chronological order here, so follow along as we discuss each goddess in terms of when their worship was happening, who was worshiping them, how their appearance was described, what their key symbols, icons, and attributes were, their patronage, and example myths uh, will be used where useful. The Fertile Crescent is where we're going to start. It's known as the Cradle of Civilization, and it's witnessed the rise and fall of many kingdoms, peoples, eras, and pantheons. And throughout all of them, Inanna and her counterpart Ishtar reigned supreme as the great goddess of the region. So with Inanna, we're talking at least as far back as 4000 BC. The people in question, the Sumerians. In terms of appearance, Inanna's appearance would change quite a lot and fluctuate. Um, sometimes you'd see her as a hybrid woman owl creature. Other times she would be this like glorious armored winged Amazon. Really, it depended on which part of her purview, whether it was warfare or sexuality you were trying to invoke or beseech. And also depending on which age they were talking about as well. Um, what consort she had at the time. It, it all played a, a larger part. So Inanna is actually mentioned in more myths than any other Sumerian or even Mesopotamian god or goddess. And her domain as, you know, sort of starting out with warfare and sexuality, it did not remain static. She's often described as moving from conquest to conquest because she would essentially basically take on another god, beat them, and then take over whatever their domain had been. She's characterized as both wise and powerful and as young and impetuous, uh, constantly striving to expand her power. She has several key attributes uh, or symbols or icons. There's the hook-shaped knot of reeds, which represented the doorpost of the storehouse. So it was a commonly used Sumerian symbol of fertility and plenty. There's the eight-pointed star, the lion, the rosette, the dove, and the owl. And in terms of patronage, again, this is, it, it's very important just to reiterate, she is mentioned in more myths and legend than, legends than any other deity hailing from ancient Mesopotamia, so she is a pretty big deal. The thing about Inanna is that her domain was ever-changing and ever-expanding, so yes, sex and war, totally her thing, but so was justice, political power. Um, she ended up being in charge of the changing of the seasons, the succession of the kings. She was the patroness of the arts and of craftspersons. She was patroness of sex workers and brides and queer folks. Indeed, her personality and her purview went beyond any, any one gender, of course. However, and this I find to be very interesting about her, unlike many other Venusian goddesses, she was never seen as a goddess of marriage, nor was she ever seen as a mother goddess. She's potentially the only Venusian goddess without any known children. Her warlike personality was often heralded in her hymns. Uh, the Sumerians even referred to battle as the Dance of Inanna. 
listen to one of her hymns so you can get some flavor. She stirs confusion and chaos against those who are disobedient to her, speeding carnage and inciting the devastating flood. Clothed in terrifying radiance, it is her game to speed conflict and battle, untiring, strapping on her sandals. Now, as for Ishtar, many historians, both past and present, preferred to simply join the two together. In fact, they would literally just make a hyphenate. It would just be Inanna-Ishtar. Uh, neighboring and later civilizations did indeed incorporate and assimilate Inanna into their pantheons. However, that is not to say that these other goddesses, like Ishtar, did not each have their own individual personalities and cults. Just as these goddesses exist on a continuum, there are sometimes groupings which function like a cluster or like a branch on a tree. And so it is with Ishtar, Astarte, and other Semitic goddesses of old. It's key here to remember that each of the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, grew to be monotheistic. None of them started out that way, so, uh, especially not Judaism or Islam, which both featured goddesses who functioned as the uh, wife, consort, or counterpart to the supreme or father god in the uh, individual religions, respectively. So, in terms of Ishtar, it's basically, um, Inanna and Ishtar got fused when Inanna's worship spread beyond Sumeria to Akkadia, Babylonia, and Assyria. And especially during the Akkadian period, uh, this is when you saw sort of a shift where now we're seeing a lot more of Ishtar, and Ishtar is being seen a lot more as a heavily armored warrior goddess who always had a lion or lioness at her side. Uh, just as with Inanna, Ishtar ruled over love and war. However, in many depictions, there was a much sharper contrast between these two aspects when they were ruled over by Ishtar. Where Inanna could be impetuous, Ishtar was easy to anger and vengeful at that. She was patroness of fertility uh, and a lover, uh, and yet at even a perceived slight, she would rain down terror, go to war, blight crops, slaughter livestock, and strike all the earth barren. Even though Inanna could be capricious and unpredictable, she was still characterized in the terms of a great goddess, whereas Ishtar, though incredibly influential and powerful, was pictured as forever youthful. She was also known to be loyal, always protecting those who, fav who she favored. However, if one was foolish enough to dishonor her, she would not only destroy them, but she would destroy their entire nation. As Ishtar became more prominent, there was a mass consolidation around her in which most of the lesser goddesses of the region were subsumed and her purview was expanded. These goddesses included Aya, the wife of Utu, Anunitu, an Akkadian-like goddess, uh, Agasayam, a warrior goddess, Ernini, which is the patroness of Lebanese cedar forests, Kilili, the symbol of desirable women, Sahirtu, the messenger of lovers, Kirgulu, the bringer of rain, Sarbanda, the personification of sovereignty, and Anat. Uh, so, actually, speaking of Anat, uh, she really does get around. Check, about, check out just how many different pantheons and how many different mythologies she makes an appearance in. So, first we'll start out with her oldest, which is Ugaritic texts, where Anat is depicted as a violent, 
uh, goddess who delights in war, but is also the establisher of peace. She is depicted as sexual and fertile, bringing forth offspring, but she continues to be called a virgin and a maiden. In Akkadian texts, Anat was called Antu uh, because for a while they wanted a uh, consort for the sky god, Anu, so then they basically made Antu, who pretty much fundamentally lacked any real distinct personality, so favor fell and people didn't really pursue that anymore. As the continuum goes, Inanna of Sumeria and her Western Semitic counterpart Ishtar would continue on first as Anat, uh, who shared Ishtar's warlike fervor, and later, and much more widely, as Astarte. For a significant period, there was a powerful triad of goddesses, Anat, Astarte, and Kadesh. Kadesh, uh, the name translates to the Holy One. Interestingly, Anat's Hercules-esque son, Shamgar, is mentioned in the biblical book of Judges. While some have theorized he was a demigod of some sort, historical analysis has shown that actually it was not an individual who was being referred to, but a military designation which effectively specified any warrior of great renown as being under Anat's protection. Uh, actually, in fact, Joseph, the big deal Hebrew patriarch, a guy with the, you know, multicolor dream, whatever, um, was married to a woman named Asenath, which means holy to Anat. Then you had the 5th century Elephantine Papyri, which kind of complicates things a little further, because suddenly we've got, oh, another hyphenate, Anat hyphen Yahweh. This would make Anat the wife or sacred consort of Yahweh, um, who basically was worshipped by the, um, she was worshipped by the Jewish refugees during the Babylonian conquest of Judea. Uh, P.S. Remember Adargadis from the last episode? Turns out that in all likelihood, she's actually the, the result of a fusion of Anat and Astarte by the Greeks, which is pretty cool. Uh, speaking of Astarte, who is she? Who are we talking about? Well, Astarte is the Hellenized form of the Northwest Semitic goddess Astaroth, uh, counterpart to the Eastern Semitic Ishtar. She was worshipped from the Bronze Age through classical antiquity, and she was particularly beloved by the Canaanites and Phoenicians, and later had extensive worship in Egypt. She is most often depicted as a naked woman holding her breasts or raising her arms above her head. She is the deified morning and or evening star. She's also seen as a warrior woman and bears large horns when necessary. Astarte was def uh, def definitely... <laughs> definitively um, more warlike and less sensual than Ishtar due to the influence of Anat. Her attributes and symbols would be the pentagram, the sphinx, the lion, the dove, and the horse. Her most common symbol was the crescent moon, which she was uh, more often than not actually depicted wearing as horns. Uh, and her patronage was, of course, like everybody else, fertility, love, sex, war. But importantly, Astarte may have been fused with an ancient Cypriot goddess, and in doing so, laid the temple and the foundation for Aphrodite. In fact, there are definitive synchronized links between Astarte and goddesses of many different traditions. She's linked with the uh, Uni, who is sort of like Juno's counterpart for the Etruscans. Uh, and of course, Roman Juno and Dia Gravita, Carthaginian Tenet, Aramean Adder Goddess, Egyptian Isis in her mother role and Sekhmet as her warrior role, and the Arabic Alat. 
She is uh, mentioned in the books Genesis and Joshua as Ashtaroth, a foreign goddess, principal enemy of the Phoeni- uh, principal to the Phoenicians and enemy to the Israelites. Uh, of course, she is also a major figure in the Goetia, one of the key texts of Western demonology, as a foul and stinking male angel of corruption and lust. Which, you know, if you're going to do a smear campaign, it's pretty cool when it looks absolutely nothing like me. <laughs> so... Anyway, next we have Asherah, who comes from, to us from at least 2000 BC, uh, from the Semitic peoples, including the Akkadians, Hittites, and Ugaritic. Um, and interestingly with Asherah, there's a little bit more of the ancient Judeo-Christian lore and iconology that gets pulled on um, with her story. So with Asherah, we have much more than most of the other goddesses on this list, like a great mother goddess-type stature. Right, She was the queen consort to the supreme god of multiple pantheons, including the Sumerian Anu, Ugaritic El, and Judeo Yahweh. Uh, she also was sometimes associated with Eve, given that she shared they shared the title Mother of All Living in Genesis. She is further and more often associated with the Shekinah, which was the identification of what exactly would be the feminine uh, divine side or the feminine aspect of Yahweh, okay? Um, However, as seen by historians, basically this could have actually been a bamboozle, um, and really she was just a leftover cultural memory or a demotion of a sovereign goddess in favor of patriarchal power. So suddenly it became, well, you know, uh, Yahweh has this feminine aspect as opposed to this is the queen mother. This is Yahweh's uh, wife or sacred consort who, you know, shares the throne with him. Um, there's other things that are pretty interesting about her veneration. One of the things that I thought was really cool was actually, they're called Asherah poles. Um, the Ugaritic amulets, uh, that have been uh, unearthed in anthropological digs show what would sort of be like a tree of life growing out of her sometimes pregnant belly. And then these were actualized by Asherah poles, which were either sacred trees that were maintained by people or by these poles they would fashion out of those trees, which were then used in her worship. This practice was so ubiquitous that it was completely outlawed and shut down by name in the law codes found in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. So, um, oh, P.S., I, I just, I did miss one thing with the Shekinah. If you don't know, present day terminology, when people talk about the Shekinah, they usually are talking about um, the Holy Spirit in terms of like the Tridentine Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because basically the Tridentine Godhead comes from the triads of ancient Rome. uh, And one of the most popular was, of course, Jupiter, Juno, Minerva. So basically you have like father, mother, child. And so essentially when we look at the Holy Spirit, um, there's supposed to be uh, a link between the Holy Spirit and the Shekinah as the lasting vestige of the feminine divine in Christianity. Uh, Also, uniquely, she was worshipped as a special patron by royal women, such as Queen Mother Maka, who is mentioned in First Kings. This was only part of her role, however, as she was understood as the sovereign patron of all matriarchs, regardless of social standing, and she was worshipped in households where her rituals and offerings were performed by each family's matriarch. 
Even the women of Jerusalem held a special place for her in their hearts, saying in the book of Jeremiah to all the men, When we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did not our husbands know that we were making cakes impressed with her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? Uh, and I did mention Islam as well. It's actually pre-Islamic Arabia that we're going to be looking at here, but that's not to say that they were unrelated. You see, uh, Allah, Yahweh, and these other supreme gods of today's major monotheistic religions were once one of many. And after outlasting or outwarring the other gods, they simply forbade the acknowledgement, let alone worship, uh, of any god that had ever come before them. Because they have to be the end-all be-all, right? Um, so, before the rise of Allah in Islam and their attempts to destroy everything that had existed before their arrival, Arabia worshipped three sisters who were the sovereign beloved goddesses uh, of the town, of the people, and their worship was centered in Mecca. They were named Alat, Aluza, and Manat. Each of the three goddesses was known as the most exalted of females, and each had a, a separate shrine. We're going to start with a lot. Now, it should be noted, first of all, just out the gate, a lot has long been understood to stand as Allah's wife, or at least his sacred consort. She had a shrine decorated with gold and onyx where she was venerated, not with a statue, but with a cubic granite of rock. Uh, the shrine and its surroundings were actually considered so sacred that no tree could be cut down, no animal could be hunted, and no human blood could be spilled. Now, in terms of patronage and like what her deal was with as a goddess, Allah was often invoked and for many things. Uh, war, peace, combat, prosperity, solitude, mercy, well-being, an easy life, pros you know, um, protection, uh, often by travelers, actually. Uh, travelers would pray to Allah for good weather, for protections. Um, and she also was a favorite for people to go to for help if they needed vengeance. Um, she had a real strong justice bent on her. Uh, and she, her favorite uh, method of inflicting vengeance was blindness or lameness, which seemed to be her specialty, uh, because she would afflict those who dare defy her will or blaspheme against her with these uh, conditions. She was also often invoked in rites of divination, usually, by the way, of casting arrows or arrowheads, which was common in the area at the time. Next, we have Aluza. Now, both of these two, Allah and Aluza, we're talking like circa 500 BC in pre-Islamic Arabia. Uh, with Aluza, we're talking about a goddess of might, protection, and love. She was one of the three chief goddesses of pre-Islamic Arabia, and she was the chief goddess in Mecca itself. Her shrine housed three trees, and it once stood at Petra. In the poetry of the pre-Islamic era, she was often invoked as a symbol of immense or pure beauty, much in the same way that we would do this with, like, Venus or Aphrodite. In South Arabia, she was known as Uzayan, and she was the de facto goddess of healing. Elsewhere, she was invoked as a sworn protector. And like Alat, she was represented by a stone cube as part of her cult. Interestingly, in certain parts of Judaic and Christian lore, there are links drawn between Aluza and the seraph, the seraph Semyaza. This was used as an alternate name for Metatron, the archangel. However, the more common links are drawn to the three guardian angels of Egypt who attacked and harassed and ran out of Egypt to the Jews uh, during the Exodus. 
In legend, Semyaza was actually the seraph tempted into revealing the explicit name of God and was thus burned alive and hung by his feet, uh, transfixed between heaven and earth for all eternity, forming the constellation Orion. There have also been links drawn to Archangel Samael, who was chief among the fallen angels who came down to earth and fornicated with women, uh, creating the Nephilim. The most complete myth we have to date surrounding Aluza is the story of her temple's destruction. Shortly after the conquest of Mecca, Muhammad began aiming at eliminating the last cult images reminiscent of pre-Islamic practices. He sent Khalid ibn al-Walid during Ramadan in 630 AD to a place called Nakla, where the goddess Aluza was worshipped by the tribes of Quraysh and Kinana. The shrine's custodians were from Banu Shaiban, and this was where she was considered particularly an important goddess. Khalid sent out, uh, set out with 30 horsemen to destroy the shrine. It appears that there were two statues of Aluza, one real and one fake. Khalid first located the fake and destroyed it, then returned to the Prophet to report that he had fulfilled his mission. Did you see anything unusual? asked the Prophet. No, replied Khalid. Then you have not destroyed Aluza, said the Prophet. Go again. Angry at the mistake that he had made, Khalid once again rode to Nakla, and this time he found the real temple of Aluza. The custodian of the temple of Aluza had fled for his life by the way, because he had heard that this guy was coming. Uh, but before forsaking his goddess altogether, he hung a sword around her neck in the hopes that she might be able to use it to defend herself. As Khalid entered the temple, he was faced by an unusual, naked Abyssinian woman who stood in his way and wailed. Khalid did not stop to decide whether this woman might be there to seduce him or to protect the image, so he drew his sword in the name of Allah, and with one powerful stroke, the woman was cut in two. He then smashed the image, and returning to Mecca, gave the Prophet an account of what he had seen and done. Yes, that was Aluza, and never again shall she be worshipped in your land. The last of the three goddesses actually turns out to be the original and the oldest. Uh, her early representations included a wooden portrait of her, which was covered with sacrificial blood. But the most notable representation of her uh, was her idol erected in Il-Mushalal. When pre-Islamic Arabians would pilgrimage to Il-Mushalal, they would actually go through a process of purification where they would shave their head and stand in front of her idol for an extended amount of time. And they would not consider the pilgrimage complete without having this visit to her idol. In terms of her attributes, they are the, they are the waning moon and the cup of death. Interestingly, with patronage, um, in terms of etymology, there are two possible names, or two possible meanings to her name, either to meet out or to determine. Both of these reflect her sovereignty over fate, fortune, time, and destiny. She's often equated with the Greek goddess Nemesis, or I guess if you put the, the fates, uh, all three of them, into one person. She was also the goddess of death and was thought to watch over graveyards, uh, as in archaeological digs, various tomb inscriptions have been unearthed which enlist her aid in cursing anyone who would trespass upon the burial site in question. And aside from being the most uh, ancient of the three goddesses, she is also thought to possibly be the most powerful, if not just at least the most ancient of all the Semitic gods. 
Next we have Atar, and Atar might throw you for a little bit of a loop because Atar's name means he who is bold in battle. Yeah, that's right, he. He was a god prominently worshipped in southern Arabia in pre-Islamic times. In ancient times, Arabia actually shared many gods with Mesopotamia as it was so close to Babylon. However, once these deities made their way to Arabia, something about getting that deep into the desert, they suddenly would change their genders and their symbols and everything would kind of get shuffled around. For instance, the Mesopotamian sun god Shamash makes his way all the way into the Arabian uh, desert to become the Arabian sun god Shams. And through this process, Ishtar made her way out there and suddenly becomes Athtar, the male god of war and storms. He was still tied to Venus, the morning star, however he was now Athtar, who provided human, uh, humanity with water, um, both through thunderstorm and its rains, as well as through the rains collected and utilized in a primitive irrigation system that he created. Uh, and of course, through this kind of correspondence, he was also tied to fertility because you can't have fertility without water, yada, yada. But mainly, <clears throat> the only other departure from the continuum besides him being a him is that his uh, symbols are the spear point and the antelope. After that, we go to Adar Goddess, who is Syrian, uh, and the attributes are doves and fish. Uh, she may actually be the only one who's got fish as an attribute, whereas literally everybody else has doves, which is so interesting. Um, but from what we can tell from the best sort of um, historical context, basically, Adar Goddess is the fusion or culmination of several Bronze Age, Bronze Age goddesses that all kind of got melted together. They are Atirat, Anat, who we talked about earlier, and Atart, which is basically the... Um, Phoenician way of saying Astarte, which is what the Greek would be. Um, so Atirat was considered the fertile lady goddess of the sea. Anat was the warlike virgin goddess. And Atarte, or Astarte, was the uh, goddess of love. And if you just, I guess, mash them all together, you get Adar goddess. Um... Basically, with Adar Goddess, it's really interesting because she took on a lot of different roles. With Adar Goddess, she starts out... <clears throat> she's the chief goddess of ancient Syria, and she was known to serve quite a few different roles because she starts out as a primordial sea goddess, akin to the Greek Amphitrite. I mean, <laughs> didn't we all? Uh, but she plays a major role in the Pantheon as the wife of Hadad because they, as a couple, basically become the sovereign protectors of the community, responsible for their city and their people's health, their happiness and their safety. And it is this role which garners her the mural crown she wears and also gets her into the role of acting as the ancestor to the royal house. In the role of Divine Ancestor, she's credited with founding social and religious life and its order, presiding over generation and fertility, and both inventing and um, inventing useful appliances and teaching humanity the art of invention. At the height of her renown, she was hailed as a great goddess uh, on par with Kybele and Rhea, and in her role as a water goddess, she was also goddess of birth. However, in Chaldean thought, coming out of Babylonia, she was also seen as the ruler over the afterlife and destiny itself. We're going to move a little bit west of uh, Syria. We're going to actually move over to Italy, where there was the Etruscans. Now, I have a really deep passion for the Etruscans. The Etruscans predated the Romans. They basically gave the Romans everything that the Romans get lauded for in terms of, like, 
this is this great Roman accomplishment, like the aqueduct or the arch or anything like that. That was literally all the Etruscans. They founded Rome. They were the first few kings. They got it all off the ground. They gave Rome their entire religious system. And then they got subsumed into Rome, um, which, you know, is tragic, but also fascinating because they're, they actually predicted their own downfall, like of their own civilization and the timeline on which it would happen. And they were totally correct about it, which is wild. Um, so anyway, with them, they, of course, had their Venusian figure. We're talking circa 600 BC here, and her name was Tehran. Now, Tehran was figured as a young winged woman, richly robed and bejeweled, and she's always accompanied by her handmaidens, the Lhasa, and she rides atop her mount a black swan called Tusna. She also had many attributes, some of which may sound familiar. Pigeon, dove, goose, black swan, hand mirror. And she was the sovereign goddess, of course, of love, health, beauty, and fertility. However, the thing is, is that the erotic was not her only sphere. She was a mother. She also would bear arms and go to war. And she played a very key role in funerary rites. She's actually also one of the few Etruscan goddesses who survived into Italian folklore uh, in the post-Roman and post-Christianized Roman uh, era. She was called Tirana and was said to be a fairy, a spirit of love and happiness, who is supposed to help lovers uh, find each other. And next up we have Aphrodite, the icon herself. So, what can you say about Aphrodite? Obviously, we know she's Greek. She predates basically everybody in the Pantheon. So, she's going back definitely at least as far as the Mycenaean era, um, 1600 BC, maybe even further. Um, her birthplace is supposed to be Cyprus. Uh, and the thing is, you know, of course, her attributes, apple, pomegranate, myrtle, rose, dove, sparrow, swan, dolphin, pearl, scallop shell, girdle, mirror, and... You know, then you want to get into her the patronage and, you know, the rest of it. For me, really, the biggest and the most vital information about Aphrodite is in the differences between Aphrodite and Venus. And I know that it's tempting because, I mean, this is like what we learned in elementary school was Aphrodite and Venus are the same exact goddess. It's just this is what the Greeks called it and this is what the Romans called it. And it's like, no, oh my God, please stop. There's That could not be farther from the truth. So there is something to be said about the very real differences between Aphrodite and Venus. And I know, again, it's tempting to simply assume that Venus is just a renamed, rebranded, repackaged Aphrodite. However, this is absolutely not true. The Romans adopted the visual depictions used by the Greeks for the gods. However, they did not do away with the essential nature of their own gods in terms of personality and temperament. The best example I can give you of this is Ares and Mars. Ares was truly loathed by both man and god as despicable. For the Greeks, the highest morality was moderation in all things, and so they were constantly telling their stories and their myths and their morality plays in which man struggles to temper his more animalistic, savage, instinctual nature uh, in order to allow cool logic and intellect to prevail. Enter Ares, who is basically the literal manifestation of, like, wanton bloodshed, useless violence, untamed lust, savage brutality, slaughter, vengeance, uh, petty grudges, 
And, you know, if you really want to paint a picture, he's got, he's like flying all over heaven and earth, causing chaos with his sons, Phobos and Deimos, fear and terror, and his girlfriend, Enyo, who's Discord, riding with him in his war chariot. They're just like, I don't know, some sort of Jerry Springer road show that's just like street fighting wherever they possibly can. Um, it's a mess. Now, contrast that with Mars. Where Ares was destruction and a constant threat to stability, Mars was the wise, strategically-minded god who encouraged military force only as a method of securing peace. <clears throat> Mars was the father of Romulus and Remus, and was considered the divine ancestor to the Romans. He was seen as the guardian of agriculture, of Rome's food supply, but... In a larger sense, he was the dignified exemplar of Romanness. He exemplified the way of being Roman, of their morals, and of their values. It's in this way that Aphrodite and Venus have such contrast. Given that Aphrodite, like few other gods, had no childhood, she's eternally nubile and infinitely desirable. Herein lies the root of her most affable and her most egregious aspects. That youthful nature often plays out with her acting petty and capricious. She's easily angered. She's mercilessly vengeful. She was known to be impossibly vain, deeply jealous, viciously deceitful, underhanded, cunning, and scheming. Venus, on the other hand, was the other half of Rome's divine ancestry. Depending on who told the story, Aeneas, the son of Venus, founded Rome. This was the, the telling of the story that would honor and incorporate the Greeks into their history. Or Romulus and Remus, the twin sons of Mars, founded Rome. This honored and incorporated the tribes of the Italic Peninsula. Roman theology posited Venus as the watery, yielding, receptive principle, which is essential to the generation and balance of life because she would absorb and temper and counterbalance the active, fiery principle of Mars. You see, where Aphrodite and Ares are clearly cut from the same cloth, beautiful but dangerous, Venus and Mars seem to be counterbalanced perfectly in order to afford stability. Where Aphrodite and Ares are young and impetuous, foolishly overzealous, and actually often self-sabotaging, Venus and Mars are mature, wise, steady, and accomplished. Arguably, two of her most profound epithets explain Aphrodite's nature in kind of her best and worst ways, but it's not exactly a split difference. So... Aphrodite's two most potent or poignant uh, epithets are Aphrodite Urania, the heavenly divine one, uh, and Aphrodite Pendemos, common to all people. So basically, these were used to illustrate various qualities of love and dimensions of experience. They were her purview, but they were also something to strive for, okay? Um... For example, where Urania was the love experienced by the soul, Pandemos was pure physical lust. Um, they were both held in high regard as they were governed as they governed equally important and essential aspects of her influence. So we'll talk about these both in three ways. We'll talk about how both are each one is attributed to a different story of her birth. Each one is attributed to a different type of love, and each one is attributed to a different type of sex. 
So, first birth. So Aphrodite Urania, if you didn't catch it already, Urania from Orania, uh, or Oranos, is Aphrodite born of Oranos. So the thing is, is that this is the parentless Aphrodite. This is the born adult Aphrodite. Basically, she was born out of violence. Uh, essentially, there were three generations of Greek gods, the primordial gods, the Titans, and the Olympians. And each generation succeeded the previous generation in the enactment of a coup. So basically you had the Titan Kronos overthrowing his father Oranos, and then later um, Zeus would overthrow Kronos, and then that would stabilize, and then you would have the Olympians, okay? So uh, Kronos overthrew his father Oranos, who was literally the sky, by using his, his signature sickle. Remember that Kronos is Saturn, um, or that they are uh, analogous. So he uses his sickle to castrate his father, and... Oranos' severed genitals fall from the skies into the vast ocean, and his blood and semen mix with the sea foam, and out of this is born Aphrodite. So if you think about, like, the Venus de Milo image, that is literally her coming ashore in Cyprus with her handmaidens and her nereads and um, her, you know, lasas and all of these different spirits around her, um, and she's in this uh, shell... Um, and so the whole point is, is that she was born out of violence, essentially, but it was this beauty that comes out of violence. Okay. So that is Aphrodite Urania. This is the heavenly divine Aphrodite. Um, she's often depicted as, uh, resting one foot upon a tortoise or holding a globe or sitting upon a swan or accompanied by a swan. Um, and this is strikingly different than Aphrodite Pendemos, because Aphrodite Pendemos, is common to all people, is a, sort of her more mundane form. She's seen as the daughter of Zeus and Dion. Um, however, Dion is effectively not even really a Greek goddess. She's a feminized version of Dio or Du, which is the Proto-Indo-European sky god. It's almost a roundabout way of saying that she is the daughter of Zeus by, like, just Zeus without really saying it, it's it's kind of a, it's not really a cop-out, but it's a way of saying like, oh yeah, we just kind of tried to make it add up that she was an Olympian instead of having her be this like uncategorizable, clearly predating us goddess uh, who doesn't fit into one specific generation of the gods. So um, then you have the types of love, right? With Aphrodite Urania, it's the universal celestial love. She's the queen of heaven, and she's elevated to the status of this like celestial queen, this universal spirit, where she definitely goes to sort of the platonic and neoplatonic ideas of oneness. Um, she is definitely uh, discussed in a lot of the symposiums and a lot of the discourse around the idea of what connects the universe and like what binds everything together. So that's going to be Aphrodite Urania. Then you look at Aphrodite Pendemos on a much more practical level. She's common to all the people. Her veneration, Aphrodite Pendemos, it's said began with Theseus, who was the first to really unite the Greeks in a meaningful way. Um, of course, we know Aphrodite is always going to be the foremost um, goddess who's tied to love. However, we have to remember it's not just romantic love that she was sovereign over, but also the harmony and equilibrium and affection that was found in the bonds of family, kinship, and community. 
Uh, Pandemos was originally an extension of the idea of Aphrodite as the goddess of love and uh, harmony in the home and in the town or city. And then the extension was extending that out to the people as a whole, as the people belonging to a nation, the people belonging to a political community. Then lastly, we have the types of sex. Um, Interestingly, Aphrodite Urania started out as the patroness of pederasty. Now, this later changed, thankfully, because I don't know that really anybody wants to be out here talking about, like, the potential, uh, like, how the Greeks saw pederasty as, like, an ethical good, um, and that it was somehow edifying to the social order, and therefore that's why it was Aphrodite Urania's, like, thing, and the expression, quote-unquote, of love that she presided over. I don't really want to be the person who's dealing with that. So, um, overall, it ended up becoming a thing where Aphrodite Urania was linked with the um, forms of love that were considered unconventional, shameful, or forbidden, and ended up just sort of being homosexuality in general, because that was not necessarily... I mean, there was a there was an immense amount of... Um, regulation around homoeroticism, if you want to call it that, um, where basically, like, there was no real outlet for you to have, like, a healthy gay relationship or, like, queer relationship between two consenting adults. Like, there was really no outlet for that. Pederasty was really the only acceptable form of homoeroticism, and that is something that, like, today in the 21st century, we wouldn't even call homoeroticism. We would just call, like, raping minors. So... Um, yeah, no, it's, it's tough. It's a tough one to, it's a tough nut to crack, um, succinctly because it's obviously thousands of years of like moral evolution between us trying to make sense of it. Um, and then you have Aphrodite Pendemos, who the form of sex slash love that she was in charge of, uh, was basically the basic earthly acts of procreation, which make life possible. So interestingly here, heterosexual love is basically denoted as mundane and basic and not in any way aspirational or spiritual, which, you know, straight people, I'll just leave you with that. Um, she was also, by the way, depicted as riding atop a great white ram and only white goats would be sacrificed to her. So, um, one of the really interesting things about Greek and Roman deities to me is their epithets. Uh, and so I'm actually going to share with you a a few epithets for Aphrodite and then we'll go to Venus and I'll share you, um, I'll share with you some of her really cool epithets as well. So first of all, um... We just talked about Aphrodite Urania and Aphrodite Pandemos. There's also Aphrodite Syriadea, which is basically the import of Astarte as she had been worshipped in Egypt. So you've got Coptic Egypt's Astarte being brought on board into the Pantheon under the title Aphrodite Syriadea or Aphrodite the Syrian Goddess. Um, there's Aphrodite Anthea, the blooming, where she basically um, gets syncretized with Anthea, uh, one of the uh, goddesses of flowers. And in this form, she rules vegetation, gardens, and blossoms. She has special rites performed for her at the advent of spring. She was worshipped near lowlands and marshlands to encourage the growth of vegetation. Uh, so these are sort of the um, more understood or accepted or, I guess, benign examples. Then I'm going to give you my favorite 
favorite ones, like Aphrodite Araya, the warlike. Um, in this, she's depicted in full war armor. This veneration, this um, this Aphrodite is one of the most ancient types of Aphrodite uh, epithets that you'll see. The masculinized, the warlike, the androgynous. And they're usually found in Cyprus. And this one specifically was founded in Cyprus, but was uh, centered in Sparta. Go figure, right? Um, there were ancient historians, and there are some modern-day interpreters, who have actually gone as far as asserting that Aphrodite Araya was actually supposed to be a feminized aspect of Ares, and there is some evidence to support this claim, and I totally ship it, so go either way that you want with it. Um, there's Aphrodite Androphonos, the killer of men, who is black-skinned, not like an actual black person, but like jet black. Uh, and it's said that her iconology was influenced through interchange with South Asia or North Africa. So I don't know about that. Um, there's a lot of people who've immediately jumped to like, oh my God, she's totally syncretized with Kali. And like, as cool as that would be to think, it's not something I'm just going to like immediately jump on. Um, but it's a, pr it's pretty cool when you look at like how there was a, a ton of like totally, um, sacrosanct taboo things tied to her. Uh, as well as uh, Aphrodite Anosia, the unholy one, who also had tons of rights associated with her that were considered like super um, illicit and taboo. And last but not least, Aphrodite Timbericos, who's the gravedigger. Um, also, you know, again, like I said with Tehran, you know, we think about these Venusian goddesses and, oh, it's all about love and beauty. And we never think about them as being connected with death or violence, but they all are. So many of them are connected with war and bloodshed and fury and death. And it's just such an important thing to remember that when you look at Venus and its rulership in astrology and in mythology, you know, it's about the equilibrium and harmony or lack thereof. So it can be love as much as it can be war. Um, so next we go to Venus. So you have to understand Venus is the prime goddess in the Roman pantheon. She's largely unencumbered by consort or spouse. She's not identified by her consort or spouse. She stands alone. And the thing that I always want to make sure is clear. One of the fundamental elements so many of us misunderstand about Roman religion is that it was a formal, contractual, and largely uneventful affair. Honoring and venerating the gods was equal to paying your taxes. It was done in order to contribute to the whole, to the security and longevity of Rome. Propitiating the gods was your duty as a Roman citizen because the Romans truly believed that they were the supreme civilization because they honored the gods better than anybody else. They literally had temples to the unknown god just in case they ever missed anybody. All right. It's also why they were pluralistic. They incorporated and enshrined the gods of the people that they conquered because they wanted to make sure that they hadn't offended any of the gods. Um, one of my favorite things that they did along these lines is that at battle, they would attempt to con before they were going to like sack a city or take over like um, and try and conquer a new city or people. The Roman battle priests would perform this long drawn out ritual uh, where there was divination done on a young ram. Um, it was like a young male goat or ram. Um, divination for like the prognosis for the battle. Right. And then they would perform 
evocatio, which is where we get the word evocation from. And basically, it was this ritual in which they would try and lure the patron deity, okay, the city's the city they're about to sack, that city's protector, would be invoked and would be offered lavish sacrifices, beautiful temples, a you know, better funded, devoted cultists, if they would just abandon the people that they were with and join the Romans. Divination would be done uh, after the ritual, and then it would be confirmed whether or not the god had changed loyalties and come to the Roman side. And if they did, like, there was several instances where the people who were about to be invaded just basically laid down their arms and submitted and like no bloodshed, no battle and nothing had to happen because they were so devastated and demoralized by being abandoned by their tutelary deity. So now back to Venus, the cult of Venus was in many ways a maverick. I'm reclaiming that word. I think it's been long enough. It was in many ways a maverick or an outlier in the pantheon. Whereas the honor and veneration of the other gods was done out of obligation with like no zeal, no fervor, no real, um, you know, gut, uh, her cults in many ways offered something different. In Rome, magic and luck were largely under Venus's purview. So if you needed something a little less official and a little more illicit, it was her temple you would be heading to. Now throw in some sacred sex work and you've got a captive audience. Venus, as the divine ancestress of the people, also was understood to be much more powerful and have a much larger domain and exert much more influence than her Greek counterpart ever could. So she was also much more intimately tied to many people's biggest moments in their landmarks. Um, you know, uh, landmarks? What am I saying? They're milestones, that's what I'm trying to say. They're big milestones in life. You know, for example, a young patrician woman who was about to be married would go through this rite of passage into womanhood where she would leave her childhood playthings at the feet of Venus in her temple and ask for her blessing uh, in her marriage and in her, um, you know, next stage of life. Um, you know, down to, you know, if you were in the alley outside of that temple and you were playing a dice game and you got the luckiest, best possible role, that was called the Venus, right? So, you know, it, it, she's sort of everywhere and, and everything. And, you know, her and Mars, their, um, influence cannot be overstated in Roman culture and Roman religion and Roman belief. So let's talk about the, um, First of all, obviously, you know, you're going to have this this similar attributes to Aphrodite, um, but you're also going to add in the rose, the myrtle. Those are really big. Um, and now we'll talk about the epithets. So there's Venus Chylestis, which is Aphrodite Urania. Um, so it's Celestial Heavenly One, right? So it's the syncretization of Venus with Aphrodite Urania and adding in the Roman Magna Mater concept. So really making sure it's understood that not only was it Aphrodite Urania on this grand scale, but that it was a great goddess as well. There's Venus Genetrix, which is the universal mother or mother to us all. So this is Venus as the goddess of motherhood and domesticity, um, as demonstrated in her divine, uh, her role as divine ancestress to the Roman people. And this was really solidified when Julius Caesar called her his personal ancestor and did this when he built her a temple in 46 BC. Um, also, Venus Genetrix is a specific style of Venus statuary. Like, it's a specific style of how her, um, 
how her like gown is draped and how she's standing. Um, there's also Venus Cloakina, who I really like. Um, so basically, she is the syncretization um, between Venus and Cloakina. Cloakina was an Etruscan water goddess of purification who presided over the Cloaca Maxima, which was the like central great drain of Rome's sewage system, which was like, you know, one of the greatest advancements that humanity had ever achieved. Um, and actually, Pliny the Elder tells this great story where Venus. Cloakina really came to be a thing um, and it's in Rome's like earliest history basically at the time the Sabines who were an Italic tribe and the Romans were warring and they all basically met at this uh, I should have mentioned there was a shrine to Cloakina placed at this grand juncture underground in uh, at the Great Drain of Rome. And so basically there was this sort of like covert meeting between uh, the Romans and the Sabines where they both met there carrying branches of myrtle in honor of Venus in order to make peace between them. So this was sort of the solidification of Venus Cloacina, the purifier. Um, there's also Venus Victrix, the victorious one, Venus Felix, the lucky one. Um, and then there are my favorites. So there's Venus Barbata, the bearded one. Um, so the masculinity on display in Venus's temples in Cyprus and Sparta were, you know, some of the oldest incarnations of Venus. Um, and Venus Barbata really is rooted in a forerunner named Aphroditus, who we talked about, um, and so Aphrodite was Aphrodite's masculine warlike aspect, which she would take on when the occasion demanded it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that Venus Barbata is pretty badass. Um, <laughs> the one that I always love telling people about is the next one, which is Venus Calva, the bald one. Yeah, the bald Venus is a strange one, to say the least. And she has a few very interesting origin stories. Um, in one of my favorites, Rome was under siege and they were kind of you know, um, stuck in the city. They were besieged on all sides and they couldn't get out. And the soldiers weren't, were unable to fend off much because their ranged attacks were shot. All of their bowstrings had given out at this point. Their archers couldn't, you know, they, their archers were like, what do you want us to do? Throw fucking swords at these people? Like we can't do much. So, um, the women of Rome who had been attempting to contribute to the war effort in every way possible had a stroke of genius and collectively cut off all of their hair in order to restring all of Rome's bows. And it was this dedication that brought Venus's favor and the swift victory that came thereafter which is super cool. Uh, in another telling, Ancus Marcius, who was one of the early Roman kings, had a wife who was absolutely beloved by the people, like Princess Di style. Well, at some point, an epidemic strikes, and she's stricken ill along with so many others. But one of the major symptoms of the plague was hair loss, and here she suffered more than most, losing almost all of her hair. And she had been known to be a very beautiful woman, and this was sort of really um, demoralizing because everybody wanted to be proud of the queen, and everybody wanted to be proud of her beauty. And so basically, in a stunning act of solidarity, the women of Rome, sick and well, dispensed with their precious locks to stand alongside her and like make it fine and like okay which you know it's come on so love that 
Um, there's Venus Armada, the armed one who corresponds with um, Aphrodite Araya. There's Venus Libitina, the Undertaker. This one's a little different than the um, the Gravedigger Aphrodite because Libitina is actually a separate goddess, like Cloakina. And so, if you ever get a chance, do some research on her. Libitina is pretty badass. Uh, and last but not least, there's Venus Castina, the chaste one. Now, this Venus is pretty interesting because her imagery and her iconology is drawn from Diana, and she's characterized as the unconquerable, invincible virgin. However, her whole deal is she presides over the, quote, yearnings of female souls locked up in male bodies. Yeah. She's also often described as an aspect or variation of Aphrodite Urania. Um, and Aphrodite Urania herself is often seen as gender variant. Nobody really knows why. Uh, so, yeah, but that's basically it for Venus. So that, of course, leads us to the ultimate question, which is what happened to the continuum? Did it continue after Venus? Well, honestly, yeah, in a strange way, it kind of did. You see, the very early Christians were pretty divided on what to do with the cult of Venus and its deeply entrenched loyalties among the Roman peoples. In many ways, the early church wholesale adopted Aphrodite Urania's celestial queendom as the blueprint for the depictions of the Virgin Mary and chose Aphrodite Pendemos and her earthy mundane lusts for the attributes and qualities which could be demonized. Don't forget how ingrained in our DNA she was at that point. Whether it was Inanna or Astarte or Aphrodite, we knew her immediately as the Queen of Heaven, the morning and the evening star with her doves and her winged handmaidens who governs love and war and so much else. So you, you know, give us that in an image. So suddenly you've got, look at um, Mary, Queen of Heaven, surrounded by angels, right? And, you know, with a diadem of stars and, you know, there's a globe and there's a serpent and there's all these things. To, that's this is not going to be hard for people to digest and sign on to because it's speaking in a visual language they already understood. You know, I'm often asked when people see my altars or hear me reference the saints how in the world a witch could ever work with Catholic iconology. And I always, always, always explain it by stating first and foremost what is obvious, but also super overlooked and easily forgotten. The Roman Catholic Church was Roman before it was Catholic. Not only are so many of the really big-name saints absolutely repackaged derivatives of pre-Christian deities, but the entire working theory behind so much of the church is derived from the ancient Roman religion. I mean, there's first of all, there's a, literally a saint for everything, each with their own purview, personality, preferred offerings, quirks, specific annual feast day. That's fucking polytheism. I don't care who you ask, that is polytheism. So, also, there's no guesswork to anything. You fucked up and broke the rules? Absolution is guaranteed. Go to confession, perform the exact formula and prayers you're given, your account is cleared. No big whoop, not a big deal. So, you might have already guessed it. Next week's episode is Saints and Haints. We'll be discussing bastard saints and lady popes and gender fuckery of the cloth. All of it is going to be great. I'm so excited, and I hope that you're going to join me for it. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I know it was a deep dive. I know it went pretty long, but I really enjoy doing this, and I'm, ho I'm so glad that I'm back with another episode, and I've got uh, another one coming out pretty soon after this. So, um... In the meantime, don't forget, be gay and do crime. The gods are always watching. Bye.